Well, this morning we um, are starting a new series called False. And you can see that little true word in there, which is really what we're after, but it's discerning truth and error. We have to be discerning on that in our culture. So we start that today, and we're going to move through that, and I'll explain that a little bit. And then after that, we're going to jump into the Bible book of Romans, which will be in for about eight years. All right. <laughs> if you do it well. No, we won't be in it for that long, but it is, it is a, a, a great, wealthy book, and we'll move through it. But um, I want to begin our series, and what I want to do is I want to begin it with this disclaimer. This morning is going to maybe shake some of you in what you think and, and things you've thought and, and things you've believed. And as we move through this morning, I want to set it up this way. There's two lenses, two things that we believe, two things that, that we teach, two things that are really in the undercurrent of everything I preach. And these two things you will need, even this morning, to shape and see how you should view the Bible and how you should view God. And, and these two things might be challenging to your soul. And the first one is this. God is for God. That simply means that God is about himself first and foremost. He cares about himself, his glory. He's passionate for it. Life is not about you. The, the sun doesn't revolve around you. And we live in a culture that that is how it goes. We want to be the center of attention. We're a very selfish, prideful culture. We're a very selfish, prideful person. We want all eyes on us. We want things to be catered towards us. When we drive around the streets and somebody pulls in front of us, like we're thinking about a hand gesture or a word, we want like, everything is about us. And so that's a challenge. When we learn that the Bible teaches that God is for God, he is what life is about. He is who we should worship. And so that is a truth that, that you need to embrace as we look at this morning. The second is this, that God has, has designed the world to work a certain way. He has laws. He has commandments. Some of them we don't like. Some of them we don't want to hear. Some of them we want to ignore. Some of them we struggle to believe. But he has designed the world to work a certain way. He knows best for your life. He's given us that in your word, and he wants us to follow it. And so it's not about what you believe or think should be true. It's about what God says is true and who he is. And some things theologically don't even feel right because they aim more at God than us. And we don't like that, but that's exactly how it works. They aim more at God than us. And so as we start today, that's the lens at which this whole series is unpacked. God is for God, and God has designed the world to work a certain way. So we submit to those things. I'm going to read from 1 Timothy. It's a pastoral epistle, New Testament letter. Paul is writing to Timothy, who's a young pastor, and he's teaching him. And if you need a Bible, Michael said they're in the, the back table. It's always good, as I say, to have a Bible. And one of the reasons it's good to have a Bible in your hands because I want you to always know that I'm not saying this stuff. This is God's word, and we should look into it. So it's never from man, it's from God. And I pray that those are the words you hear today. This is what it says. Paul is instructing Timothy here, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, 
desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. I want to invite you to pray a simple prayer. Ask God to speak to your heart, even to challenge you with things that you think are true as this message unfolds itself and pray that God speaks to your heart and I'll do that for us collectively. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for this gathering of believers and no doubt some that don't know you personally. And Father, I pray that you would strengthen the believers in truth and bring the unbelievers in this room to truth. People that need to know need to know they are sinful and lost and you have given us a savior in Jesus. And Father, that we'd be a people always that desires truth, no matter how painful it is to our souls, that we would be a people that seek biblical truth, no matter what our opinions are, that we would seek truth and we'd be led by it. So I pray you lead us by it, lead us in it, point us to it. And we thank you for Jesus who is, by his claim, the way, the truth, and the life. We pray these things in his name. And all God's people said, there's a story, a story of a devil, the devil walking with one of his cohorts one day and he's walking along and beyond them, he sees somebody pick up a piece of something and he picks up something shiny and it's a piece of truth. And so the devil's cohort looks at the devil and says, he found a piece of truth. Aren't you upset that he picked up a piece of truth? And the devil says, no, I'll make a religion out of it. We live in a culture that takes half-truths and makes them total lies. We take partial truths. And you would think religion isn't bad. Religion in that context is that we take truths, some things that are true, and we make them fit, and this is what religion is, in a way that appeals to self more than it appeals to God. That's what religion is. Involved in there sometimes are traditions, anything that are pragmatic to us that make us feel good. And so sometimes we follow things, we believe things, we even teach things to other people that are not true. They might have partial truth in them, but if you parent like I parent, we tell our kids a half-truth is a total lie. It's not the full thing. And so Satan often will take things and that, that have a little bit of truth in them in our culture. He does this rampantly, and he twists them in order that we become a religious people who believe all sorts of things that are not completely true. And as we'll learn this morning, you may believe some things that you would maybe just confidently, as we take from Timothy, assert, and you would speculate on that aren't true at all. And maybe we learn some of that today. By definition, a half-truth is this. And you can just log on to Wikipedia for this, not saying, especially saying that the internet is not your source of wisdom. That's the Bible. But this is what it says is a half-truth. It's a good definition. is a deceptive statement that includes some element of truth. The statement might be partly true. The statement might be totally true, but only part of the whole truth. Or it may use some deceptive element, such as improper punctuation, double meaning, especially in the intent to deceive, evade, blame, or misrepresent the truth. And they're all over the culture. This is happening all over the culture. You can get in any group of people, and people share their opinion, and some have little bits of truth, and they formulate what they are confidently asserting about, and some of it is just a total lie. And the Bible rests upon a belief that there is this thing called absolute truth. 
And the Bible is that, the revealed word of God. Everything that God says is absolutely true. Now, George Barna, many of you have heard of him. He does church studies or cultural studies related to the church and Christianity. And what surveys show by him is that a minority, a minority of born-again believers, adults, 44%, less than half, and an even smaller proportion of younger believers, teenagers, our next generation, 9% are certain of the existence of absolute moral truth. 44% of adults, 9% of teenagers believe there's an absolute truth. Even more disturbing is the fact that by three to one margin, adults say that truth is always relative to the person in their situation. So it's only true if it's for you and it's working and it's your situation, it's true. That's scary right there. According to a majority of American adults, it's 57%, a little over half, knowing what is right and wrong is just a matter of personal experience. So it doesn't really, there's no absolute, it's just a matter of personal experience. Barnard asserts this in a survey. This view is much more prevalent among younger generations than among older adults. Three quarters, 75% here, of millennials, have you seen a millennial before? I'm like right above, I'm 38 years old, I'm right above that age, I'm probably caught in the millennial, but people younger than me would be considered these very, like, selfie stick, hipster, jean, glasses kind of thing, experiential, millennial people, you, you know when you see them, okay? All right? They agree strongly or somewhat with this statement, 75%, whatever is right in your life or works best for you is the only truth you can know. So 75% of these people walking around said, whatever is right for you, go and do it. It's true. It's good. Compared to only 30%, 38% of the elders. And millennials, 31%, are three times more likely than elders, those older than them, even me. 10% and twice as likely as boomers, 16%, and Gen Xers to strongly agree with the statement. So there's all these people groups, our younger generation, that are believing the lie that whatever you believe is true, is true. What does this all mean? Many in and out of the church today, but primarily those that I'm concerned with, our believers, and how we live and demonstrate this, do not believe in absolute truth. And specifically, the Word of God, the Bible, is that absolute truth. Which again, (laughs) listen... The most ironic thing about someone who makes the confident assertion that there is no absolute truth contradicts their very argument because when you say there is no absolute truth, what makes that true? It's a contradiction, so it's ironic. Somebody says there's no such thing as absolute truth, and that's true because... John Stott quotes it this way. One of the chief tenets of our culture today, he's right on in this, is that there is no such thing as objective truth, let alone universal or eternal truth. On the contrary, everybody has his or her own truth, his or her own truth. You have yours, I have mine. They may diverge widely from each other, even contradict each other. In consequence, in consequence, the most prized value is tolerance. Ironically, it tolerates everything except the intolerance of those who insist certain ideas are true, others are false, some are good, and some are evil. In other words, when you go out in the world today and you look at sin and you say that's wrong, you will be labeled as intolerant. But the very person that's calling you intolerant is doing what? 
being intolerant. So it's another contradiction, which for me is easy because all things then point back to absolute truth. There must be something absolute. You see, no follower of Jesus could truly embrace the idea of complete subjectivism. For he said he was truth. That's a statement. He came to bear witness to it. That's a statement Jesus made. That the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth and that the only truth is his truth and that truth will set you free. I listed four references, John 14, 6, 18, 37, 16, 13, 8, 32. If you're taking notes, did you get all those? <laughs> Jesus made those claims. So truth matters, the full truth, not the half truth. And so Jesus warns us in the Gospels of false teachers. He warns us. And then the New Testament writers come along and God uses them to pen these words. There's going to be people in the church. He writes in, the, in Paul's letters, Guard yourself against false teachers. There's going to be a bunch of deceptive lies out there, and you need to guard the truth. And so it shouldn't surprise us that we find ourselves in a series like this, in a culture that's tolerant, and it's a big problem in our world, and it's become a bigger problem in the church. This has crept in, and we say, oh, yeah, this is true, or I believe this, or this isn't true, or it doesn't matter if it's true. And so that's where 1 Timothy comes in this text. Paul is urging, urging. Timothy by addressing him here. And in verse 3, he urges him to stay there in Ephesus. And he says this, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. He says, Timothy, this is not a suggestion. I am urging you to stay there and charge people to not teach anything different. So Paul's making this huge, huge request of Timothy. He says, you got to guard this because there's going to be people in here who bring these falsehoods in and you need to refute it, you need to avoid it, and you need to get rid of people who teach it. That's what he's saying there. And he urges him to not teach. Now, this assumes that there was one agreed-upon doctrine, which there was. And it refers often in the pastoral epistles to these ideas. When you see these, it's all talking about the same thing. The faith, the truth, the sound doctrine or the way where people of the way the teaching or the good deposit, those are all things that they were agreed upon doctrine. And the doctrine was the Old Testament law and then Jesus being the fulfillment of that, not the abolishment, the fulfillment of that law, that Jesus came as an atonement for sin. So that sin is real, that he lived a perfectly righteous life, that he died a death for sin to take God's wrath and punishment off of all condemned sinful people in order that we might reconcile our relationship to him that we might have hope of a resurrection. And that's the gospel, the doctrine that was protected. And they knew that. They agreed upon it. There was this body of doctrine. The apostles knew it. They saw Christ, the resurrected Christ, that made them super apostles, if you will. In short, the word of God was revealed through Christ alone. There was, and it was only by faith that you could be saved. They all agreed on that. And so we need to cling to that truth. And that's a good pause point for us. Do you know that truth of the gospel? It's not religion that saves you. It's only the work, the person and work of Jesus Christ at the cross that will ever bring a relationship that is broken between you and God to reconciliation. And Paul then continues to warn Timothy in verse 4 about these two things. Nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. What is he talking about? Myths or mythoi in the Greek was this idea basically for us to understand it's like old wives' tales, 
or fables, things that maybe seem a little bit true. Here's a really obvious one, and I'll talk about this in future weeks in the sermon series that we're in called verse jacking, when people take verses out of context or they put things together that aren't even in the Bible, like this one. Cleanliness is next to godliness. That's not in the Bible, right? That's not in the Bible. But people say those all the time, or old wives' tales, things people believe, and this has crept into the church. And so that's what these myths are. Paul is teaching Timothy, don't let people just spew these myths, these things that aren't true. And, and religion is formed out of them. Satan twists them. And then he says genealogies. Genealogies is for us a little bit confusing. Like, are genealogies bad? What this is referring to is literally the genealogies in Genesis, which shows the patriarchal, where, where they all came from, this list of names. But it's showing us traditions that were passed on. And in the church today, this is how I look at this. There are so many things today that mainline denominations, that even, even, even evangelical Bible-believing churches do born out of tradition because they've been passed down to us that are just not biblical. So I meet with people all the time, and we sit in an office, and they want to look at the world this way or say, why do you do things this way? And I challenge them often. For example, this is just an example. If you grew up in the Catholic Church or if you have exposure in that, confession. Like, why do you feel like you need to confess to a priest in order to have your sins absolved? Where does it say that in the scriptures? It just doesn't. That wasn't the Old Testament practice and surely isn't the New Testament practice that you need Jesus. You don't need someone to mediate for you and God. And it's a tradition that just forms into a religion. And it's happening all the time. And so these myths and genealogies, religion formed traditions into truth or religion formed in traditions and not truth. And Paul says the product of such things, myths and genealogies, is twofold. It obstructs both faith and love. He said that in verse 4, that it will promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith, and speculations, it won't promote faith, it'll promote doubt. It raises doubt to the real truth, and we need, we know that we ought to respond to faith by faith, to the way to the doctrine by faith, because it's absolutely true. And what we do with our opinions and the things we believe or have truths is we speculate things we really don't know. And so all across the church and even in our culture, people are just sharing opinions because they feel right. Maybe they have a little bit of truth, but they're speculating. And that is not the stewardship of what God has given us by faith. On the other side, as mentioned in verse 5, these things go against the aim of love. We know that Jesus came in full of love and grace. Love and truth, we always talk about it. John 4 is probably the best example of Jesus displaying this, shares love with this woman at the well, and yet shares harsh truth with her. These examples of this. And so we need love and truth. Now, what is love? Love comes from a pure heart, it's mentioned right here in this verse, good conscience and sincere faith. These three things. First, the pure heart. Not our heart. Jeremiah 17.9. The heart, our heart, is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Psalm 119 follows it with this. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. So the heart in our sinful state, is deceitful. But the heart, according to God's word, is pure. This is linked to the word of God. Good conscience. This is what Paul says in Romans 9.1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience 
bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. He is linking his conscience to truth. He's saying my conscience is not just this moral code that I feel good or bad about something I do. He's linking it to the Holy Spirit, which is the spirit of truth. So he's saying my conscience, if it is absolute and true, if it is truly loving, it comes by God's revelation and his helper, the Spirit. He links the two. And then this one, sincere faith. Where does faith come from? Romans 10, 17 tells us faith comes from hearing and hearing through what? The word of Christ. So Paul links all three things to the word. He says your heart, if, if it's going to be your opinion, speculations, is going to be deceitful. He says your conscience, if it's not going to be guided by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of truth, is going to be you and your moral code. And he says your faith will only come by the word of God, God's revelation to you. All those things according to truth, the word. And Paul teaches Timothy, here are the consequences for false teaching, of false teaching. In verse 6, the consequences here. Certain person, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. If you swerve away from that which is absolute, the Bible, you will be in vain discussion. We know that word vain is what? Really about your selfishness. It will be about you. It'll be about what you think, what you feel, what you see, what you think is right. And when God comes and challenges you with something that's different from what you feel, you won't like it, likely will not obey it, and likely then will do the other thing that Paul talks about. You will lead others towards that same falsehood. He says, desiring, this is what happens when you wander away from absolute truth, you will desire to be teachers of the law without even understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So you will take your opinion, which is not biblical, if this is you swerving away from the truth, and you will take your opinion and you will place it on others. And you'll get in debates when we talk about tolerance and intolerance and issues like homosexuality and abortion and cultural things. You will insert your confident assertion but what God is saying, what Paul is saying, what Paul is saying to Timothy is you need to do that biblically. You don't have confident assertions. God has confident assertions. You have a deceitful heart that you need to check against the balance of the word. That's what Paul is instructing Timothy. He says, you might not think your opinions, the things you talk about, things you shape in your own theology are dangerous, but your desire will be to lead other people in that falsehood. There's three possible outcomes then. One is that if you're not careful, you could become a false teacher. You could start sharing things that are not in the Bible, half-truths, but total lies. You could start deceiving other people. The second outcome is that you could be led by false teachers. You could sit under the teaching of many even famous Christian evangelical TV preachers that do not preach God's word. They preach themselves, masked as if they're preaching God's word, and you can be led away into false doctrine. That's another outcome. Or the third outcome is that you could live according to the word and use and let God by his spirit guard your heart and protect it from false teaching. You could be a person that always looks at all things through the lens of the scripture under those two things, that God is for God, so it doesn't really matter what I think. And he's designed the world to work a certain way. It matters what he has designed, and I'm going to submit to that. And to demonstrate that, here's what I want to do. I want to have us take a test together. 16 questions that we're going to do on the screen, and I'm going to preface it like this. 
These are true or false questions. And I want you, if you're a note taker, you can just write one and then a T or an F, true or false. And we're going to go through each question. And I'll warn you, the questions are not designed to make you feel stupid or ignorant. They're not designed to to like irritate you in some sense, although the wording of some of the questions will be irritating to you. You won't like them. You'll want to like, ah, well, if it's that, I just want you to put true or false, okay? And they're not to come up and debate afterwards, although I want to have conversation. The point is, no matter how you feel about those things, we're going to go back through them, and I'm going to give you the answers with biblical reference that you would wrestle with them. You would think about them biblically. So if you leave and say, man, I don't know if I agree with number five. You said it was true. I said it was false. I want you to dive into the scriptures and make your case there. I do have a problem after Sundays when people come to me about something that was said, and they're waving their finger. You know those people? None of you are that people, right? I don't like talking to those people. Who I like to talk to is those who come to me and go, man, I'm really struggling. You said this. Here's where I think the scriptures are different. That's what I want us in, the truth. And so I want to have dialogue with this, but this test is going to, we're just going to see what it does, all right? Some things you might say, I believe this, but does the Bible actually say this? So here it is. Number one, are you ready? And young people, you too, I'm looking at you too, right there. This is for you. The Bible says that money is the root of all evil. True or false? Just say it to yourself. Write it down. The Bible says that money is the root of all evil. Is that true or false? Second question. The gospel, in summary, is that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Look at that. True or false? The gospel, in summary, is that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. True or false? Number three. God wants me to be happy. Is that true or is that false? Just pick one. Is it true or is it false? Number four, people are not under condemnation until they personally sin. In other words, they need to like exhibit a sin, a sinful choice, desire, thought, and then the condemnation happens. True or false? Five, the Bible says that God tempts us in order to Test us. Is that true or false? Maybe you've heard that before. True or false. Number six. If I have enough faith, God will work my desired outcome. So I need faith and God works the outcome. Is that true or is that false? Number seven. God will never give you more than you can handle. I hear that a lot. That's in cultural circles. It's in Christian circles. Is it true? True or false? God will never give you more than you can handle. True or false? Number eight. I can grow spiritually apart from being connected to a local church. You can say that backwards. I cannot grow spiritually unless I'm attached to a local church, but I can grow spiritually apart from being connected to a local church. Is that true or is it false? Number nine. Only pastors and elders can administer communion or baptize people. So maybe that's reserved to just me. Is that true or false? Number 10. God controls every single detail of your life. I'm going to read that again. It reads just like it reads. God controls every single detail of your life. Is that true or false? 11. Christians shouldn't judge anyone. Christians shouldn't judge anyone. Is that true or false. Number 12, 
People who do not know Jesus Christ personally will suffer in hell. I didn't read that very well. People who do not know Jesus Christ personally will suffer in hell. Is that true or is that false? 13. Everyone is God's child. Everyone is God's child. Is that true or false? 14. When you die, God gains another angel. True or false? Hollywood might help you with this or might not help you with this. 15. Bad things happen to good people. (laughs) Please get this right. Bad things happen to good people. Is that true or false? And finally, 16, which is kind of like the the deal here. The Bible is absolutely true and has no errors. No errors in transmission and historicity. No errors at all. True or false? That's the 16. You have your answers, if you will. Some of them are hard. Some of them are worded. Man, I wish wish it wouldn't have been worded that way. So what I want to do is I want to go back through and I'm going to give you the answer and the scripture to support that answer. And if you disagree, I'm going to try to unpack that in a way that we can, but you also might come to me later, come to me and let's search these things together. All right. And I'll note this too. These Questions with their references are out on the table, the info desk, with the references, so you can take them home. I want you to take them if you're not going to take notes now. The Bible says that money is the root of all evil. That is false. The Bible doesn't say the money is the root of all evil. In 1 Timothy 6.10, it says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now, what's interesting is this. It's a misquoted scripture all the time. So it's false. It says the love of money. But in the context of 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul is actually writing to Timothy about false teaching. So it's interesting and ironic that people have totally abused this verse. Paul is also teaching Timothy in chapter 6 about false teachers. Be really careful, he says. So that one is false. The Bible doesn't say that. Number two, the gospel in summary is that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That is false. It is not the whole gospel. In fact, that statement, we give these out as the four spiritual laws. It's the first statement, but it's not all four of them. The summary has to include all four parts, and in these four parts, it has to include creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Creation, Genesis 127, you were created in, God created man in his own image, the image of God he created them. So you're in the image of God. But then man fell. Romans 3.23 unpacks that. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, unpacks the punishment for that. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, which links then to Mark 1, 14 and 15. When Jesus came and spoke these things after he was arrested, came to Galilee, proclaiming the gospel, saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So there's something that you need to repent of, your sin. It's not just a wonderful plan for my life. You have to repent and respond by faith. And then finally, if you do that, therefore anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. As a final restoration, we look ahead to Revelation and we see that one day Jesus will come back. He will judge the living and the dead. And if we've placed our faith in him, we have eternal life and we will not be condemned. And he will restore all things. There'll be no more weeping, crying. He will make all things right again before, as it was before the fall, the entrance of sin into the world. That's the full gospel. God does love you and have a wonderful plan for your life in Christ, but it's only one part. You have to have the whole 
package in that. So it's a partial truth. In that case, in summary, is a total lie. Number three, God wants me to be happy. That's false. This is going to be tough for some of us. God's desire is to glory in himself. His desire is not for you to be happy in all your ways that he looks at you and says, because he might give you some really hard things in your life that won't make you happy. We talk about this in the church all the time. Happiness is not joy. He wants to be your joy, but he wants you to be holy. 1 Peter 1.14 says, Obedient children, do not be conformed for the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. There's no verse in the Bible that says, Be happy, for I am happy. But... He wants you to focus on kingdom things. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all of it is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride and possession is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. It's the desires of the worldly things that make us happy. And you might be like really wrestling right now and say, God doesn't want me to be happy. He does want you to delight in him and be happy in him, which is Psalm 97, 12. Rejoice in the Lord, righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. He wants you to be happy in the context of your delight being in him, but he is not after your happiness. He's after you looking to him by faith, and he's going to bring about good things for his glory, not yours. And so God might bring really hard things into your life, and they have good purpose, and they won't make you happy. But you can have joy in Christ. Number four, easy one for me. People are not under condemnation until they personally sin. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned. And more clear in Psalm 51.5, David writes this, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did I my mother conceive me. That was from birth. There was no, like, I had to, like, like, punch my, you know, older brother or, like, steal from them or toy or say no to my parent. It was condemnation from birth, sinful flesh. Number five, the Bible says that God tempts us in order to test us. God is not the tempter. Look at James 1, 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured away and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. God is not a tempter. He tests us with trials, and he allows for Satan to tempt us with sin, but he is completely in control. He is not, temptation is not from God. It's just not from God. Number six, if you have enough faith, God will work, keyword there, my desired outcome. That is false. He will work his desired outcomes. And if some things he won't give you that you've been praying about for a long time, look at Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 times, and Paul was pretty faithful. I pleaded with the Lord about this. He wasn't perfect, but he was faithful, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. There was something that Paul wanted God to take away. He prayed with him. He pleaded with him. He demonstrated a faith that God could do it, and God said no. He just said no. He didn't take it away. He said something different than no, though. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. And then this one in Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. There will be things in your life that you do not understand. You just won't. How is this good? How is this from God? How is God allowing this? Trust in him. 
number seven. I said earlier, if I had a dollar for every time I heard this, God will never give you more than you can handle. It's only partially true, but it is false. First Corinthians 10, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation... He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God will never give you more temptation than he has given you a way out of it. Does that make sense? Beyond your ability, all right? So the temptation, he knows you have the ability to overcome it. Satan lures us into sin. We can choose yes to do it or no to not do it. God has ingrained in us the capability to choose that and enough power to do it. Sometimes we fall in that. The reason why this is not true, though, God will never give you more than a handle. Sometimes God gives you death. Sometimes he gives you sickness. Sometimes he gives you persecution. Sometimes he gives earlier martyrs execution. That's a lot to handle, don't you think? And sometimes God does that. And so that is only partially true. Yes, he gives you the ability to escape, but some things you cannot escape from. The executioner's sword, if that be your lot in life. There are many missionaries that have had that, and God has used those things to glory in himself, to bring glory to himself. God is for God. Number eight, I can grow spiritually apart from being connected to a local church. No, you can't. That's false. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 says that let us consider how to stir up one another, look at that one another, to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's not just one verse that supports this. You cannot even accomplish like all the one another's in the New Testament, things like submit to your leaders, participate as a member of the body of Christ, all those things without being associated with the local church, connected to them, membership in. So that's not just like one, like, oh, Hebrews 10, 24, that's kind of vague. No, there's like the whole New Testament is not kind of vague. You have to be a part of the local church to spiritually grow. Now you ask, well, wait a second, what about Chinese prisons that I'm secluded in by myself and I can't go to church on Sundays? Exception, of course, right? But the norm of the scripture's teaching, God would design that, that no, you need to be a part of the body of Christ. Most of us are not in Chinese prisons alone. Most of us are here right now taking this test and feeling guilty about some things. Number nine, only pastors and elders can administer communion or baptize people. This is easy. First Peter 2.9. You, anyone who believes in Christ, are a chosen race, a royal priest a holy nation, a people of his own possessions, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him that called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Maybe you think that's just for preachers. I proclaim the excellencies, so can you. And you can administer those things, not because you've had training in them, but because you are a priesthood of believers. This is what Paul says about himself in 1 Corinthians 4.1 and his other apostles in ministry. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Yes, he had a special office, But he was imparting through his theology and the theology of the Bible that all people are priests and priestesses in Christ. We don't need another mediator. We have one high priest. I am not your connection to God. I'm not. Jesus is. It's why you know that I struggle with the term senior pastor. Jesus is the senior pastor of the church. He's the chief shepherd. I am some really ignorant servant of Christ. That one's false. Number 10, God controls every single detail of your life. This is the one that you're going to get upset about. That's true. God is sovereign. Psalm 115.3, 
Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Next verse. The heart of man plans his way, all your choices that are involved in that, but the Lord establishes his steps. Genesis 50, 20. Some things bad happen in our life. You meant evil for me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And finally, Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This question and debate is like hours and hours of sermons on the sovereignty of God. But God is sovereign. He controls all things. He works his purpose and plan in all things. And you do have free will, but God uses your free will in his design. There is something out there in the church running rampant as a theology against God's sovereignty. Everybody say open theism. It's the idea that God reacts to space and time as if I didn't see that one coming, so I'll have to make it work. So if something bad happens in your life, God kind of like reacts to it and says, oh, I can make good out of that. That's not what the Bible teaches. God uses these things. He knows about them, and he allows for them to happen. That one's true. 11, another struggle. Christians shouldn't judge anyone. Matthew 7, 1 says that, but it's false. Matthew 7, 1, Jesus is speaking here. I'm not calling Jesus false, by the way. Judge not that you be not judged. But then Paul comes along in 1 Corinthians 5, 12 and says, for what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Yes, both true, right? We are not to judge the world. How do we expect lost, sinful people to ask or act? Lost and sinful, it is not our condemnation, but in the church, we have accountability towards one another. And this verse says that we are allowed, charged to judge people within the body of Christ. So how does this flesh itself out? If you live in unrepentant sin, and yet you claim to be a believer in Christ, I can come to you, not because I'm the pastor, just because I'm a brother, and say, you need to repent of that sin. You need to, to repent and turn back to Christ. I can say that, and so can you say that to me. That's judging a brother. I meet with some people sometimes who are living in unrepentant sin. I have two questions to ask for them, and the, the conversation goes a direction differently if they answer this first one a different way. And I say, are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Do you claim to know him by faith? And if they say yes, then I can judge that, be accountable to each other. If they say no, I don't have a lot to talk about except for to pray for them and share the gospel. But this is all over our culture. We, shouldn't judge, we should not judge the world. That is true. But we are, as a, believer, a believing body, to judge one another. So, so be mad at me. Judge me. Do whatever you want. That question, you're mad. I know. People who do not know Jesus Christ personally will suffer in hell. Number 12, that is true. Mark 9.43 couldn't be more clear. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And then Revelation 20, and if anyone's name was not found in, in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There's only one way to have your name in the book of life, and that's faith in Jesus Christ. Number 13, everyone is God's child. That's false. Everyone is God's creation. But this is what John 1.12 says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, faith in Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God. That relationship needs to be restored in Jesus, your response by faith. Everyone is God's creation. Some of them have common graces on the earth, but not everyone is a child of God. Only those who believe and receive Jesus Christ. 14, easy one. When you die, God 
gains another angel. Humans are humans, angels are angels. That's false. Psalm 8, 5 says, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. A lot of theology in that, but humans are humans, angels are angels. Number 15, bad things happen to good people. That's false. Bad things happen to redeemed people, but no one is good. Psalm 14, 3, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. Now, in Christ, we are clothed in his righteousness, but we are sinners redeemed. We are a new creation, but there is no good people. What do I always call you? Redeemed by the blood of Jesus, and you are saints and beautiful in his eyes, but there is no good people. Number 16, the last one, it's easy. The Bible is absolutely true and has no errors. That is true. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness. Here's how you need to look at that verse. The Bible is absolutely true. It was breathed out by God, but look at it in this way. It is from the breath of God. It wasn't so much that it was given by God, is that it is God. It's his breath. It's not that it was just delivered to us. It's him. It's him speaking. It's the God who is for God and the God who has designed the world to work a certain way. And so what do you do with this as we close? These four things in application. Number one, be careful. Be careful in what you believe. The things that you think you know and make confident assertions about, be very, very careful. Number two, be in the be careful. Be careful what you hold out as your confident assertions. Be careful what you wield as your speculations your vain discussions, the thing that you will argue and die on. Be really careful. The Bible says that a wise man is slow to speak and quick to listen. Be careful. And be careful who you read, who you listen to, who you're influenced by. There are some really bad Bible teachers who aren't even Bible teachers, but they claim to be. There are some really bad books that say some really bad things, but Satan has taken some partial truths and made a total lie. Be very careful. That's number one. Number two, desire wisdom. We should all desire to grow in that and desire wisdom not from you, but from God, from his word. Desire the Bible. I had somebody come and ask me after the first service, is there like a book that you can kind of like plug all these answers into and it spits out this thing? I said, yes and no. There's really big books, but you need to desire biblical knowledge so that you can refute error. You ought to desire that. That's on you and knowing what God's word says. Number three, in that vein. Read and study your Bible. I talked about it last week. Don't just read it. Study it. Meditate on it so that you can be prepared when someone says a very erroneous thing that you say, that's not in the Bible. I don't believe this because that's not what God's Word says. And number four, I want you to do it. I want to be a church full of people like this. Question everything. Question everything doesn't mean that you don't agree with it. That means you're wrestling with it. You're questioning it. And it doesn't mean that you don't either. Question it. If you hear something in a sermon and it's like, I don't know if I... Question it. Our church and its leadership want to desire biblical truth. We want nothing from man. All Bible, all the time. Question everything. Discern it. We'll talk about that as we continue in this series. Those are the four things. Be very careful not to swerve away from the truth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you in your goodness and your love that you are a God who cares deeply for himself.
Father, I even read this this week that, that Oprah left the faith in Christianity because she read somewhere that you were a jealous God, passionate about yourself, and yet that is truth. Father, we are so self-centered. We're so prideful. We're so sinful. Our heart is so deceitful. Help us, God, see you in your magnificence, in your truth. Yes, you love us. Yes, you're good. Those are things that are in your word. But ultimately, you are concerned first and foremost with your glory. May we be concerned first and foremost with your glory, not ourselves. And so, Father, thank you for your word that we would submit to it. Thank you for even the hard things that we wrestle in, that we work out our salvation in fear and trembling, that that is a battle that we fight a a fight of good faith, Father, that it's not always easy. There's things we don't understand, but Father, help us to be very careful in only claiming Christ in confident assertions, things that are biblical. Help us to shut our mouth to things we don't know for sure. Help us to believe that there is an absolute true truth and an absolutely true God and an absolutely, absolutely true Jesus who is the only way and life for us. May we follow him into eternity. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said. I do have the sheets that we went through on the info desk with the answers. Know again that some of those things were not true or false because they had a partial truth in them, but they weren't the whole thing. Especially, you have to know that a partial truth wasn't the full, for example, three, the summary. So know that you can get those, talk about those, think about those, read the scriptures. This is what Ephesians 4 says, as we go and should be proclaimers of truth. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and given themselves into sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through sinful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Friends, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Have a blessed day and go in peace.